Welcome to the Classical Happy Hour. I'm your host, Martin Davids. This is the show where my guests and I talk about music while enjoying a tasty beverage. And we try to play some music together, or like today, we're going to read some poems. Today's guest is Aaron Dworgan. How's it going, Aaron? It's going great, Marty. I am very glad to be here with you. You know, it's so great to see you. It's been so long. Um, way too long. Way too long, my friend. Uh, let's not go that long again. <laughs> um, so for my listeners who don't know you, can you uh, tell us about what you're doing for work these days? <laughs> well, I guess I do a fair amount for work. And, and it's also interesting hearing your voice. I feel like I should just talk softly during this entire interview. I hope that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when I'm reading a poem, I'll get a little louder, but. Um, No. So I um, have, I guess, what's called a portfolio life. So my main thing I do is I'm a professor uh, uh, at the University of Michigan's School of Music, Theater and Dance, our alma mater. And uh, I teach arts leadership and entrepreneurship, which I desperately love and love my students and get to do that. And so that role uh, as a professor and all the things that go along with that, in addition to the teaching, are a cornerstone of what I do. Um, I'm also still an advisor. I serve as founder for the Sphinx organization, and so I'm able to still help out with some of the work that that organization does. And um, I have a show, Arts Engines, uh, that's basically focused on arts administrators and comes out every Saturday. And, uh, and then my main creative output, which I think we'll probably end up talking about a little bit, is uh, my poet journalism. So I serve uh, kind of in this capacity as the poet journalist in residence of a number of organizations um, like Complexions Dance, uh, Contemporary uh, Ballet Company, um, Char Music, uh, poet journalist in residence for the upcoming Bicentennial for the City of Ann Arbor, uh, and I've also served in this capacity for the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, Ovation TV, the Rodham Institute, and Fisher Foundation, and some other organizations. So let's just jump on that a little bit, mm-hmm. because I, I think probably not everyone knows what a poet journalist is. <laughs> Maybe you could define that. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. I didn't know what it was uh, about two and a half years ago uh, before I uh, originated the, the term. Uh, so it's interesting. So I've done since, and you will know this from our time back at Michigan, when I began exploring text with music and spoken word with music, I just loved that and loved being able to see how you could take either existing poetry and or be creating poetry and combining it with classical music and just see where that could take a listener. And so that evolved literally over a couple of decades into me wanting to now do kind of another poetry project. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that I actually wanted this to be a cappella. And in that, I wanted to try to capture various events that were happening around the world and use the medium of poetry to do it. So I was kind of trying to figure out when I want to do something, I think about how can I frame it? Because basically, I think as being pretty undisciplined in some ways, I need personal framing. Otherwise, I won't get anything done. And so I was thinking about that. And I'm like, 
well, it's kind of like I'd be a journalist. And I was like, but not a journalist in the traditional sense, of course. And I'm like, not even a photojournalist. But I want to use this. Me, I was like, oh, poet. And I was literally, it came, I was like, poet journalist. I was like, okay, that must be a thing. And so I Googled it, and literally, and it wasn't a thing. And that made me even more interested in delving down. I like exploring areas where it doesn't seem like people necessarily have gone uh, before. And, um, and at the very least, you'll have a grand adventure. Uh, and even if it does lead you a little astray. And so um, I kind of originated the term thought about framing it this idea of creatively illustrating whether it's news events or other um, aspects that people go through cultures, experiences, history, but utilizing this medium of poetry and doing it in a in a creative way, where opinion can be part of it. And uh, so as I began thinking about that, I was like, okay, great. And I can do a new collection of poetry, but I did not want to create a body of work that I figured maybe, you know, a couple hundred people, mostly in the academy will read and comment on and some will be positive and other will be interesting criticism and that'll be it. I didn't want it to end up having as its result kind of an academic exercise for colleagues. Um, I wanted to reach people and what I've learned from my entrepreneurial work that I've done founding the Sphinx organization or other organizations is partnership and collaboration. And so that's what led me to go, well, are there institutions out there where the work that they do is in alignment with things that I would love to talk about as a poet journalist and write about and create about, emote about, share and um, and in some way convey to an audience aspects of these issues. And so that's what led me, for example, to Health Inequality and the Rodham Institute or obviously the arts and ovation or char music or... Uh, further in the arts and dance with complexions or obviously African-American history with the Wright Museum, etc., or work in community and impacting lives, especially young people's lives and educational work like the Fisher Foundation. So it was the idea of combining this with those partnerships and that helped create this framing. And then it's almost like I felt I've been along for this extraordinary ride and journey um, that led to this recent collection of poetry and uh, an album. I mean, I find it really impressive that you can just invent a word and then <laughs> all these people hire you to do that. <laughs> so, well, so that, that also gets into the entrepreneurial aspect because, of course, anyone that I reached out to, they're like, what on earth are you talking about? And I'm saying that lightly. They, they think they use some sure. other language to say, <laughs> what the F? Like, what is this, Aaron? This, what on earth are you doing? Um, and uh, so I would say two things. One is that um, people said the same thing when I founded the Sphinx organization. People said the same thing when I launched uh, Arts Engines. Um, people have said the same thing when I wrote my first collection of poetry. So... People who've known me for a long time, like the extraordinary host of this podcast, um, that I'm often doing things that just give you at least an immediate sense of pause and go, wait, what? <laughs> um, and, uh, and obviously you do a lot of like, you know, just fascinating things that I think for many people might be new or outside of their sphere of what they might think would happen in a traditional 
day. And so one was that a lot of the people I reached out to knew me and that I might, you know, be reaching out about interesting ideas. But second, obviously, then I had to actually explain what it was and then explain what that could look like. And so uh, so I did. And so I did the work of trying to say, why would a Museum of African-American History be interested in this? Why would an institute that's dedicated to health inequality be interested in this? What what? Am I bringing anything of value? Because no matter how much they might like the idea, if I'm not bringing something of value, why would they collaborate or partner with me? It has to be a two-way street, any partnership. So um, so I, I did that work of once I knew what I wanted to do, get out of myself and say, so if I was this partner, why would I be interested? What what is there a value in there? And how can I articulate that to them in such a way so that we can at least, you know, test it. And, um, and amazingly, uh, you know, uh, almost everyone that I reached out to wanted to explore it. And the results are, of course, you know, this body of work of this book and album that, that I'm very proud of. And, and, and it seems they're very proud of as well. That's awesome, man. <clears throat> so let's just rewind it a little bit. And, uh, Talk about your uh, your education and how that prepared you to do something completely unrelated. <laughs> well, so it's very interesting, right? We had such an amazing time at Michigan. And, you know, I went to the Interlochen Arts Academy for high school. I credit Interlochen with saving my life because it absolutely did. I would certainly not be sitting here. I would probably either be dead or in uh, a prison cell, I think, if not for Interlochen, for real. And I credit Michigan with building my life. And, um, and so it's interesting, because while I absolutely never studied poet journalism at Michigan, <laughs> since it did not exist, uh, and I certainly did not study poetry, right? Um, the school of music as it was when we were there in a music theater and dance gave me the opportunity to explore beyond my music right that i was just doing traditionally so when i went i wasn't just you know learning the basic sonatas and concertos and doing my skills and etudes and okay let me do that and do the prescribed recital in juries and and do my thing and play an orchestra etc i got to form a quartet with djembe drum i got to form a quartet with dancers and work with a choreographer and do that i got to um, take text and combine that spoken word text with music and do it with projections on a screen so the foundation of this, what I view as interdisciplinary work that I do in poet journalism was absolutely born through my experiences and creativity training that I was going through at Michigan. That's cool. Uh, I feel like there was a lot of individually tailored stuff going on. I felt like our violin teacher was trying to pick out repertoire that suited us and not just fill some standard mold, but also 
most of the people going through the school weren't doing the kind of stuff that you were doing. Yeah, but, you know, you were exploring, right, the passions and that really brought you joy and and beginning this extraordinary, you know, especially Baroque adventure that, that you've taken. And you're absolutely right, right? Our, our teacher helped to provide that freedom to be able to do that. And, um, you know, and I mean, absent of that, you know, even the Sphinx organization, you know, I mean, that was, you know, born out of me, you know, obviously seeing what I saw whenever I go to an orchestra concert, all of that, and it's kind of sitting in the back of my mind. But when I went into a lesson, and my teacher was like, do you want to play music by William Grant still or black composers? I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And right, it opened up this whole world to me that I didn't even know existed until then, which of course, hopefully today is, you know, uh, anathema. And hopefully everyone, you know, experiences a much broader um, uh, breadth of, of repertoire than, you know, we experienced 25, 30 years ago. And, um, and hopefully Sphinx has been able to play a part of that. But Michigan gave me the flexibility to do that. And for then my juries or my recitals, I was able to do them in an atypical way. Um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, but part of that exploration was also, you know, exploring things on electric violin and, uh, things like that with, uh, some friends who were around who did some interesting things on electric violin and some interesting compositions. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) For those in the audience, I'm talking about our illustrious host. (laughs) I still have that uh, that period instrument uh. <laughs> <laughs> of the 1990s. <laughs> Zeta. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they make those anymore. Um, so growing up, what what did you think you wanted to do with your life? Oh well, I mean, when I was very young, I wanted to be a soloist. I wanted to win the Tchaikovsky competition, and you know be, you know, not just the first American, but the first black American to win. And through my music and winning the competition, I would bring the world together with my music and, uh, and, and through that change the landscape and bring, you know, world peace and all of that. So yeah, just very, very, (laughs) (laughs) maybe a little bit different, but, uh, yeah, so I, I would have failed the, the swimsuit competition, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for many reasons they don't still have that. I think they don't still have that, which is good for so many reasons. Right. Um, so when did you start to figure out what your purpose was? Oh, well, I, for sure that is a, a work uh, in process and certainly not completed and I'm not sure if it ever will be um, I I I think my purpose changes you know I'm not sure if at the end of this uh, you know grand adventure of life I'll look back and be like able to say oh that was my purpose you know other than you know to family, um, it's changed. So, you know, I felt like I had a purpose even at Interlochen and that shifted at Michigan. And, um, I certainly of course felt and continue to feel a purpose 
related to Sphinx and when I was building Sphinx and and felt a, a huge sense of that purpose and social impact and and still do to help support that um, but I also feel obviously a purpose as it relates to my students and my teaching at Michigan um, I feel a purpose anytime I write or I get on stage and do spoken word and my poet journalism um, I hope that some of the works that I do and am working on now, even relating to some world affairs, will serve a purpose. So I think it's more, not that I have a singular purpose, but I think at least what I try to do through most of life is go through, and I hope that a huge percentage of what I do has impact. I think almost everything that I do has purpose, as in it has an intent. Whether I ultimately am able to achieve impact is another story and not necessarily even for me to define, but I certainly strive for that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so, but at a certain point, I guess you gave up on the Tchaikovsky competition. <laughs> <laughs> I realized that I was not as good a violinist as I thought I was. No, it's actually, uh, in some ways, I guess, unfortunately, much deeper than that, um, which was that, so A, that was, of course, right, this childhood dream. And I think so many years ago, I'm going to be a soloist, and this is what I'm going to do. Um, and and I fell in love with chamber music, and then I thought for a while thought also as uh, being an orchestral musician. But um, uh, to make a very long story short, while I started out at Penn State, I ended up taking four years off, um, not really by choice. And um, and during those four years, I really wasn't practicing. So things that I could do on the instrument, I couldn't really do when I came back to them, and came in as a transfer student at Michigan. And um, so I began thinking about that. And one of the things was also just very pragmatic. I was like, okay, yeah, you know, like that whole soloist thing. But I was four years older than most of my peers now coming in as a junior undergraduate at Michigan. And one of the things that I realized was the amount of time alone in a practice room that it would take for me to get to the point to even be competitive to be a soloist, I realized I did not want to do. And that was very important to kind of have that moment of honesty with myself. So there was that of saying, okay, now I could, but if I was gonna spend it, it certainly needed to be at that point a minimum of six hours a day in the practice room. I was like, man, because I, you know, I was struggling to put, you know, hour or two. <laughs> I was not, uh, never in my entire life, I've been the most diligent um, uh, person in the practice room, and um, and I was lucky early on to do a number of different things. I was concert master at, at Penn State, and and was able to, you know, have a, my debut at thirteen with the Brook Violin Concerto with the Hershey Symphony. Concertmaster Harrisburg Youth Symphony. So I kind of, you know, I had that trajectory of early, you know, okay achievement on the instrument. Um, and I rested on those laurels. 
I did, I, I rested on them at, at Interlochen to a certain extent. And, um, and then at Michigan, I started thinking about that and well, what, and not just, okay, this was a childhood dream, but what do I really want to do? What do I love spending my time doing? And what I always loved was chamber music. Always loved. I loved the connection. I loved being in the quote unquote practice room larger with other people, you know? So sure, I got to make sure I can bring, you know, my own notes to the rehearsal. But man, I love working with others. Uh, Loved, I would say, working with others in that context and loved making music with other people. So I was so that's why I started really diving into chamber music. So that became was like, oh, I could really start a chamber group and do this and that. So then I would say the dream began to evolve. And as it evolved, kind of I evolved with it and I let both my passions and my joy combined with realistic assessment of my abilities and what I could bring in terms of value to in the real world and what others would value to kind of my decision making. And ultimately, what became my passion was just my my shock, my joy, um, and my uh, kind of all in experience into the music of composers of color. I couldn't believe that that was absent from the entirety of my musical background. And I think my musical trajectory would have been different if I was interpreting different stories than the standard stories. I think it would have affected how I viewed music, how I viewed my practicing, how I viewed time in the practice room. Um, And I was loving it. And so I was looking at saying, well, what could my role be? And I was like, well, I've also had this, some of this experience outside of, you know, school and in kind of entrepreneurial um, environments. And maybe I can bring that to bear to make a difference because I can't change my own history and trajectory. But man, if I could somehow make a difference here, it could change the future trajectories of thousands, if not more, of musicians of color. And that was like, wow, I can bring value. I can make an impact. And I think one of the things that interestingly solidified it for me, I had a very complicated relationship with my parents, my adoptive parents. And uh, and initially when I was talking about starting Sphinx, right, this organization to affect, you know, diversity in classical music, and in that at that point specifically a competition, for young black and Latinx string players where they would have to be required to play music by black and Latinx composers. The, my parents were like, what? You, you have now come up with the most complicated way to avoid practicing. That is literally what they said. <laughs> and then after, it was not even the first, it was after the second competition, they said to me, you know, you're creating more of an impact with this than you ever could have even if you became the world's greatest soloist and I was like and it was interesting because I didn't feel at that point given our complicated relationship that I needed their kind of stamp of approval but man every child wants their parents there's no matter what the nature of your relationship is with your parents when you feel or they give you that stamp of approval, 
man, you're exact. It just feels good. No matter even if you're like, I don't need, you know, I don't need you to <laughs> tell me that what I'm doing is right. But man, it it yeah, it felt it felt very good, and um, and was just an affirmation of the fact that that path was right for me at that time. So that's why I feel like it's a constant evolution. And at one point, as that, you know, young eight-year-old, you know, it was that soloist. But then, you know, at 27, it was building the Sphinx competition. And now at whatever middle age uh, I might be at, it's, um, you know, this impact I can have in the classroom uh, for my students. And I can still have on a stage through my poet journalism and through online to be frank, platforms and uh, and through the written word and um, and I see that as this impact I'm able to have. So, if you uh, if there was some version of you that didn't care about uh, making an impact <laughs> and changing <laughs> the world tough. in some way, what is there some other job you'd like to do just for fun? Mm. Yeah. So, a I don't. It would be very. I become deeply unhappy. Uh, if I'm if I'm not having an impact, um, I just don't. Um, I don't, you know. Um, I actually I don't like like sitting uh, by a pool all day or sitting on a beach all day and like kind of the 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 stereotypical vacation is actually not. <laughs> I can do that for like an hour maybe, and then I'm like, uh, okay, now I need to like do something. Uh, it would be fun and interesting and I certainly have hobbies and things that I love to do kayaking and um, playing poker and things like that but um, but man I, I I just can't sit um, kind of and do nothing I get very actually very unhappy um, so I don't think there's a world I can envision where I wouldn't care about having an impact um, but um, really, the only thing I can say is that it's always a process of evolution for me. I am always so what I'm doing now is completely different than what I was doing five years ago, which was different than what I was doing five years before that. So my life is always in a state of evolution. Um, and everything that I do, I put through the lottery test and the death test. So everything that I do, I'm like, you know what? If I won the you know the billion dollar lottery, tomorrow would I still do the same thing and if the answer is no I actively try to work to change that in my life so I'm no longer doing it so that's one component um, and the second uh, is a little more morbid but is the death test which is if you know God forbid and knocking on wood um, I learned that I had some type of terminal uh, illness would I still do what I did today and again, if the answer is no, I actively work to change that. So for me, it's even almost beyond impact. It's just that um, I want to be uh, always vigilant and intentional about what I do rather than just kind of letting the world happen and doing what I do. And then potentially, God forbid, looking back, you know, five years in the future and going, why was I doing that, right? Like, I, I don't want to do that. I always want to be exploring, questioning, evolving. Uh, and for me, that brings me 
great happiness. I derive huge happiness in the exploration, the, you know, the risk of delving into this poet journalism, like, right, everyone I talked to, any partner I reached out to could have been like, uh, yeah, no. And I could have, you know, felt some rejection and stuff like that. But man, I would far rather have done that and fallen asleep with the rejections than have woken up five years from now going, you know, that poet journalist idea you had, man, I wonder where that would have led. And now I, you know, get to sit here and, and talk with you about these things that I feel passionate about and um, and express them through a book and album and on stage. And I feel extraordinarily fulfilled. That's awesome. Yeah. When you figure out what you want to do and then you do it, you should just feel good about it, right? Yeah. Thousand percent. <laughs> so... <coughs> Okay, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Whenever there's a pause before a question, I This isn't my question. This comes from somewhere else. Um, have you ever been in a situation you couldn't talk your way out of? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, there's one thing I'll say just as a, a precursor to the my answer, which I'm not sure what it is, but um, which is that the ability to talk, the ability to articulate um, what you want or what you want to do or what you see or what you care about is an extraordinarily important skill set. And it is absolutely a skill set. You can absolutely suck at it. Um, You can absolutely be great at it. And 99% of that is based on the time you spend in the practice room, if you will, at it. Um, in other words, that a lot of people just, well, this is just how, da, 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 and how I talk, or how I articulate this or whatever it is. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a skill set. And it's one that you can practice and get better at, or it's one that you can kind of not care about. Um, so A, I think that the ability to, and it goes beyond talking out of a situation, but to me it is the ability to articulate what you care about. And if you're in some situation, then what you're caring about at that moment is how can I extricate or solve this problem or this situation? And your ability to uh, articulate that is critically important. So for example, poet journalism, my ability, I could have this great idea to me and what I want to do and feel passionately about it. If I don't have the ability to articulate that to a partner, to Complexions Dance, to Ovation TV, to the Rodham Institute, to the Wright Museum, then I won't build those partnerships and then those poems won't get created. So that skill set, critically important, talk about that and teach that to my students because I think it's very, very important in the arts and arts leadership. Um, and so... Uh, what I guess in, in answer to is there something I can't talk my way out of a situation? Uh, well, I certainly have been in many situations that are difficult that didn't result the way I would have wanted them to. That's for sure. Um, and uh, and especially when it comes to, you know, I'd say personal relate some personal relationships, thankfully very few. But, you know, where as you look back, you're like, well, would I have wanted that to result that way? You know, and uh as they say, certain friendships or relationships, they end gradually and then suddenly. Uh, and, um, and usually because there was a lack of, of communication, which was both the ability to articulate and listen. 
and so again, critical skill sets. Um, but what I would say over with all of that said is while I am absolutely imperfect and, and definitely I have there are countless situations where I would say it's not talk out of, but where um, just situations didn't resolve or result in what I might have hoped for, that I am very intentional and um, and I strive to always get better at my ability to both articulate and listen. And as a result, what I do find is that, especially in professional circumstances, but also in personal circumstances, hopefully moving forward in life over time, that I'm in a state of continually getting better. Okay. By yeah. the way, I don't know if I talked my way out of that situation <laughs> and that yeah. question well, but that's, that was you know, my goal. <laughs> I'm a lot more impressed by the situations you've talked your way into than the ones you've talked your way out of. Wow. I absolutely, I wish I would have said that. That was <laughs> more profound than what I kept rambling about. Yeah, but I, I usually talk one sentence at a time. You, you know how to keep flowing. <laughs> okay, so just a couple more things. Like, uh, is anything cool coming up that you want to plug? Oh, well, yes. So, uh, so I mean, certainly I will be um, opening in November uh, as the poet journalist uh, with Complexions uh, Contemporary Dance, uh, Contemporary Ballet uh, at the Joyce Theater in New York. Really looking forward to that. Anyone can go to their website and check things out or the Joyce Theater's website and be great uh, for them to join for that. So I'm very, very excited about uh, about that and kind of sharing that work. And then also I'm serving as the poet journalist uh, in residence for the Ann Arbor's Bicentennial. So that'll take place basically over the next 18 months and a series of poems will come out through that. So encourage people to check that out. Um, and of course, I would be remiss if you did not go wherever books are sold or albums are streamed and uh, check out uh, The Poet Journalist. Uh, I am out there. Those are out there. And obviously, you know, I want people to share in in, uh, in the, the stories that I'm weaving in these poems. Uh, but hopefully there'll be some, you know, grand adventures. And I always welcome people to reach out to me um, when they experience my uh, work and, and give me feedback, uh, positive or negative, and especially anyone who would like to collaborate. I am always looking for collaborations. And I can only imagine that five years from now, the artistic collaborations I'm doing now, I couldn't necessarily even have dreamed of today. Cool. And then uh, do you have any advice for for young people or young musicians, young entrepreneurs? Hmm. Uh, so yes, lot, lots of advice. Uh, but uh, all of that takes a semester long course to give you all take of my, my advice. Yeah. So <laughs> come to the University of Michigan and absolutely take one of my classes. Um, uh, but beyond that, I would say uh, a couple kind of just core basic things. I know they sound so, so basic, but I think they're so critical. And one is to do it, whatever that is. So if you want to be the first, although no longer, to, to win the Tchaikovsky, or if you want to transform audiences with your music, if you want to create an album, create an organization, create a company, whatever it is, do it. And by that, I don't mean just go and do the totality of that. But by doing it, you start the process. You're figuring out what that is. So one is to just 
do it and not just talk about it. I cannot tell you how many people I encounter who talk about all of these things that they want to do. And then six months later, you know, there's still a lot of talk and no actual doing. And so I'm very, very pragmatic about that. The second component is, and of course you have to be passionate about whatever that is. Um, The second component is when you have figured out what that is that you want to do and are starting it, actually take a realistic assessment of where things are at. So in other words, if I still wanted to be that soloist, when I came to Michigan, slightly older, at the age of, you know, 23, 24, um, several years older than my peers playing, okay, I still want to be a soloist, but I should step back and go, okay, but I want to be a soloist and here and I look and there's two orchestras and they have a relative gradation level to them and I'm, you know, wherever and third stand or whatever. Uh, I can say, okay, so here's generally where I'm at. So given that and multiplying this music school by the 10 other top 10 music schools, where am I at? And what do I know statistically about the number of people emanating from this group of people who will in fact then become world-class soloists? It doesn't mean I can't do it, but what it does is it gives me the realistic scenario of what is it that I will have to do to be able to break out of that statistical reality. How can I accomplish it? What do I have to do? Because that will then inform the process and the steps you have to take. So one is to actually really be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start doing it. You second, you look and you say, okay, what's actually involved? What's the realistic, what's the real world knowledge and information that will help inform me? And then third, go about what hopefully is an extraordinary journey. And I think when you go through that process, whether the journey leads you to your original destination or not, A, of course, the journey is the beauty and we're always in a journey. We never really ever reach any achievement. Otherwise, then it's all done. Um, But also you find that your journey may lead you to places you never might have thought of. I never could have thought of or imagined being a poet journalist, but it was only by being open to my experiences and what I was going through in life that led me there. Wise words from the professor. (laughs) Okay, so before we wrap this up, uh, is there anything you want to ask me? (laughs) Well, there's so many things that I would love to ask you, Marty, and I just don't know if this podcast is the best place to do them but since i've been you know sipping on this extraordinary bourbon um i feel potentially courageous now um uh no actually i would i would say because it's really curious we've known each other for so long but if someone were to ask me i don't think i could answer this question about you which is now what brings you the greatest joy in life I think love, family, friendship, and uh, a little bit of meaningful work. <laughs> I love how you put that. I love how you put that. <laughs> That's so great. And you know, it's so interesting. That's what I live for, man. Right? I, it's so interesting. All these other things pale. You know, um, I give thanks very intentionally multiple times each day which by the way i feel like gratitude is something that's very important how whether you do it through 
a spiritual process, a religious process, or, or otherwise, even some scientific, intellectual process. But that, that process of gratitude, I think, is healthy and informative. And, and so I do it very, very intentionally multiple times a day. But what I am grateful for has nothing to do with my poet journalism, has nothing to do with my work in diversity, has nothing to do with the arts. Um, it only has to do with my family and those close relationships. It's amazing how that just cuts through um, everything. And, um, you know, your, your health to be able to experience those relationships and those relationships um, because otherwise the professional impact of those things you have to celebrate them with so there has to be someone who you can share the process the work the challenges the ups and downs uh, and certainly for me it's very similar to what you shared that's what yeah you can be hardcore about your career but I'd rather be hardcore about my family Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And all of the studies that I've read of, you know, people who are older or towards the sunset of their journeys, that is what, right? You never hear someone, you know, who's, you know, 80 years old, 90 years old, and, you know, things are, are sunsetting. And they're like, yeah, I really wish I would have worked a little harder. You know, I wish I would have called in sick that Thursday. <laughs> right, right, right. Wish I would have <laughs> called in sick that Thursday. Like, of course, right? It's the opposite. It's I wish I would have spent more time. Wish I would have, wish I wouldn't have listened to what other people told me or what I thought other people wanted me to do, right? I wish. So to me, it's that are you following your heart? Are you following your passion? Are, and what is the nature of those relationships that matter to you? Whether you choose to have a, a, a you know, a, a primary kind of spouse or not, or however those relationships are important to you, that is what we know from data is important ultimately for people. Um, and I definitely, at least for me, is what's, uh, what's most fulfilling. And all of the other things absolutely are purposeful and, and are fulfilling, but only because those other things are there. Okay. Uh, well, I could talk to you all night, and I probably will after the podcast. Uh, but right now we're going to take a break. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and uh, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Um, come to my website, bachfortwo.com, and buy stuff. And we're going to be right back and read some poems. Rosin. Violin players wield bows hewn from Pernambuco wood, bookending the tension of hair from horses' tails. Silky equine strands would draw no sound if not for the rosin, delicately yet repeatedly applied, disrupting an otherwise serene interaction. To create beautiful melodies, friction between metal and biological material must be initiated. Weightlifters, dancers, climbers, bull riders, all use sap drizzled from pine trees, distilled into beautiful tools that empower ability. It is compelling how love for my mother only grew like morning glories after adolescent conflict and admonishment for my behavior. It is alluring how love for my wife only deepens when a diet of 
disagreements comprise an agitation within the exquisite complexion of a union destined for ecstatic evolution. Whether kept by guard or cloth, dark or amber, this roll of rosin seeks to let us all remember how our path to the harmonies in existence lie in the friction through which we relate the differences that make us all unique. Mm. That was well read. (laughs) No, but I love, can I just say this? Because I think it's so important to me. This is the power of this medium. I think there are many people who have used rosin every day for dozens and dozens of years, but never thought about it the way they might think about it during that poem. And in some ways just experience that thing they've done every single day a little bit differently and or equate it to other aspects of their life and or their relationships a little bit differently. And if that happens, I'm, you know, extraordinarily fulfilled. So I love, I love this medium. So this is the title poem from uh, both the book and the album, because uh, there's different, some different poems on both. Uh, but this poem is, uh, is there both on the album and the book, and uh, it's called The Poet Journalist. And I, I wrote it for myself initially because as I had originated this term, I felt a need to frame what I meant for myself as I began thinking about the poems I would be doing. And so I said to myself, why don't you do a poem that kind of helps to just set the, the, the kind of framework that will surround what it is you're trying to do with this. And so that led to um, these words, which are the poet journalist. I am the multicolored tubes looping down the wall, darting around outlets colored red and yellow, snaking into veins of the elderly woman, gasping from within the sheets of her COVID bed, anchored by technology to the protocols of strangers, dedicated to prolong the life she faces without the grip on her lover's wrist. I am the passive man in straight black pants with my untucked white shirt facing the column of tanks as their turrets salute my defiance in Tiananmen Square before my movement falters, showcasing my human right to exist, my freedom to persist. I am the failed bank filled with the empty paper and promises of people's dreams, chosen for their inability to pay like the stray gazelle on the savannah as the lion poaches their prey in the early morning mist. 
I am the Twin Towers twisted metal, exploding into crimson blossoms, fading into black entrails and futures lost, shading the horizon of our lives like the passions of lovers before they fall into disarray and forget what sparked their rise and hatred of their demise and events regretted yet still reminisced. I am the nine minutes and 29 seconds that a black man donning a black tank top felt the knee of dispassionate authority on his full-throated neck before his life with voice was ground into silence that was heard and shook the sugar maple trees of Richmond, Virginia and broke the blue wall more than any Afro pick with fist. I am the grist for bottled water office talk. I assist the memory to feel the moments lost. I am the emotion of every story missed. I am the words the newsprint failed to list. I am our soul we must enlist. I am the poet journalist.